Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Amen. It's good to see you guys. Doing all right? Good. Let's be in Ephesians. Everybody get there. Chapter 1. Finding, finding our identity. Finding our identity. Knowing your identity, at least as the world understands it, is, uh, is seriously tricky business. Um, and, and, I, and it's weird that it is, though, right? You'd think that, that finding your identity would be a fairly natural thing to do, right? I mean, you were born... You have a life. You, you would think that just taking the path of least resistance would easily develop the identity that you're supposed to have, but it's not really that way, is it? And the reason it's not is because identity has become so fluid and malleable in our world that there's so many different influences and, and, and different voices that are speaking into and telling us who we are. And so who you are is, is easily swayed by the shifting ideas and cultures and influences of the world. And so before we get started today, I just want to point out the ways in which we are so easily shaped uh, by the world, okay? And now some of these things are things that we can't help, and, and I'm, not, I'm not making an enemy of any of these things, right? Um, like these are all just a part of our reality, but they don't necessarily have to determine who it is that we become, all right? So let's just start here. Our identity is first and foremost shaped by our genetics, right? By our genetics. Each of us look and sound and behave in ways that are determined by the genetic data that's been provided to us by our parents, right? There's really no way around that. You were born and you were born to the parents you were born to. And they gave, you, they gave you your eyes and your ears and your hair and your height and your, your hairiness or your lack of hairiness, Mason, right? Like, look at this dude. I mean, I just saw the glimmer off the top of your head and I just thought, <laughs> whatever it might be, whatever it might be. Mason's not, some of you are like shocked that I did that to Mason. Mason and I, we've got that relationship, Right? He knows he looks good with a bald head, and he's engaged, so he like, doesn't even have to worry about it. He's going to be married soon. He's got that thing locked in. But who we are physically and biologically is guided by God's providence. There is no way around it. Our identity is rooted and impacted by the constraints and the liberties that are afforded to us by our biology, okay? For instance, I will never be an NBA player. And the reason for that, I know, Danny, isn't that a shock? Danny's like, come on, don't give up so quick. <laughs> I'll keep trying. I'm out there in the backyard doing layup drills like I was 12. Uh, no, I, I probably won't ever be an NBA player. First of all, I'm 41, right? Which is, you know, my knees aren't good enough to be a basketball player. But, but, but genetically speaking, I don't have the height. I don't naturally have the strength um, 
And, and 50% of whether or not I end up in the NBA, NBA is rooted in the biological determinants of my life, right? People in the NBA are six foot four and eight and seven foot 20. And I'm not that. I'm not those things. And so, you know, our lives are constrained by our biology. They just are, okay? And that's for good and for bad. I mean, I mean, like in some ways, we see uh, areas of our life, you know, physically as being a disability or a weakness, but a lot of times those weaknesses can be our greatest strengths, right? And so understanding that as just part of our reality and part of our identity is, is what it is. Now, now, number two, if that falls into the nature category, the next three things fall into the nurture category. Number two, our identity is shaped by our environments, aren't they? We are impacted by the places that we live or we grow up. The people that we're around, our parents, our family members, our friends, the circumstances that unfold in our life, those things are so often out of our control. Sometimes they're not, but a lot of times they're out of our control. Who we love, the losses that we've experienced, all of these things shape our identity. And we can't, you know, again, some of that we can help, but a lot of it we can't. It's just, it's just a part of our story. And so as children, man, when your brain is developing, so much of who you become is affected by the things that you experience in your home or at school, in your neighborhood, uh, with your family members. And so those things are impressions that are put upon you that affect who you are in terms of your identity. Number three, our identity is shaped by our self-perceptions. Our self-perceptions. And self-perception is generally rooted in who we observe ourselves to be within the context of our world. How we see ourselves is affected by, by who we understand ourselves to be within the reality that surrounds us. We compare ourselves to other people in order to determine how we understand ourselves. And so if you think about, think about yourself in elementary school, Right? And you're looking and seeing the shoes that kids wear at school. And then you, you, you're like, you feel pressure to like wear the same shoes as the people around you, don't you? I mean, some of you, I'm like, that, that, that feeling is strong with some of you. Um, the way your friends cut their hair or the, or the things, like my son is really into Pokemon, you know. And I don't know if he'd be into Pokemon if it wasn't for the fact that he just happened to sit next to kids in his class, you know, in second and third grade that like Pokemon cards. I mean, I'd prefer if he, you know, was collecting sports memorabilia. <laughs> that would fit more within my purview. But that's not what he's into. He's into Pokemon. So I'm giving him that. I don't get it. He's, he's right now, he's developing his own Pokemon, bootleg Pokemon cards <laughs> that he calls Spokemon cards. <laughs> and so he and I have been drawing characters together. It's been fun. The most recent character that he de developed was a pair of boots, cowboy boots, with a big mustache and eyes. So, but again, all these types of things, our interests are so often affected by our self-perceptions, how we understand ourselves within the world in which we live. And so this can cause us to experience the world with confidence. Sometimes these things make us confident. Sometimes they cause us to despair. Sometimes our self-perceptions produce frustration or pride. Number four, our identity is shaped by others' perceptions, how other people perceive us. We're heavily influenced by what other people say we are, 
You know, that's why I try to be real careful with my kids. I want to speak things into their life that affect them in a positive and a biblical way, right? And so a lot of times you see parents like kind of from an early age say, oh, my kid is such and such thing. That's who, this is who they are. This is how they act. This is how, and we can very easily uh, uh, hoist our ideas onto other people. And this is what your friends do at school. This is what your friends do, you know, in life and, 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 and your colleagues at work. The things that they say about you, they, they, you seem to own them over time, don't you? Friends, family members, teachers, coworkers create judgments about us based on observations. And then as they engage with us, they project those ideas onto us. And, and so often we're affected by the way that other people engage with us. And so these are, these are, this is today's psychology lesson for Kaya. Thought I'd give you a little psychology. But what if I said, what if I said that we could escape much of the complexity of figuring out who we are by simply learning to know Jesus Christ? What if navigating our identity could become exponentially more simple? What if deciding what degrees to get or what career to pursue, who to date and what relationships to cultivate, whether to get married or to be single, what kind of spouse or parent you should be, where to live, what to do on Friday night, what if all of these things, these difficult questions that, that often surround our day-to-day life, these things, these, these decisions that inform who we say that we are, our identity, what if I said that having a relationship with Jesus would relieve you of the, bur- the burden of all of your identity pursuits. So the question, who am I, becomes less burdensome and more joyous the closer we get to Jesus. And so that's what our series from Ephesians is about. It's about finding our confidence in who, who we are in Christ versus who the world says that we are or who says, the world says that we should be, right? So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for this people. Lord, there are a lot of, of, of people that I don't recognize here today, visitors that are, that are here worshiping with us. Lord, I just pray that, that you would uh, help them to understand that they're loved and that they're valued here. Uh, God, I pray for Kaya and this ministry. I pray that you would continue to, to provoke us and, and to encourage us to find ourselves sourced in you that we would let you do all the shaping in our lives, that you would be the one that, that affects how we understand ourselves and, and, and who we are within this world. We, re- we require the help of your spirit today. We, we require the, the um, precision of your word. And so help us to navigate it uh, with integrity, uh, that we would divide it rightly and that it would have the meaning that it should have. We ask for this help in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, 
that we should be, the, uh, be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of, our, of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. In the book of Acts, we are told of the journey that the Apostle Paul took to Athens. And while he was there, he took time to visit Mars Hill, which was a, a famed Greek intellectual site where men from the government and the academies were invited to speak and debate about politics, philosophy, and science. And while in Athens, Paul was permitted to speak there. And as he did, he argued for the belief in Yahweh as the one true God, for the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And as he presented his apologetic, he made a statement about the reality of the Christian faith and our identity. And it goes like this, Acts 17, 27, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. As believers, we are the children of the living God. And in him, in him we actualize our life. In him we live. We are, we are physically engaged in this world. By, by the breathing of his breath. In him we live. Our physicality is found in him. Our very body is made by him. It has its life. In whom, in whom we have our movement, our free agency, our ability to behave and engage the world is found and sourced in him. In him we have our being. Our soulishness, our, our spiritual existence is found in him. And so who am I can only properly be understood if we first determine what we have in Christ. Does that make sense? We can only truly understand who we are in terms of our, our life and our movement and our being if we understand who he is. Now in five chapters, five chapters of the book of Ephesians, the phrase in Christ appears 26 times. And so the, the phrase in Christ is seen at, a high, at its highest density of any book in the book of Ephesians. Similarly, no book in the Bible uses the phrase in whom as many times as the book of Ephesians. So what is Paul telling us? What is God telling us? That as Christians, understanding our identity must begin with understanding what it means to have our being in Christ Jesus. And so verse 7 begins this way, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In whom we have redemption. So let's, let's start here. In whom? In who? Whom is who? Who is, who is whom? Okay? It's Jesus Christ. Contextually, we know that this is Jesus. He's the only one who gave his blood. Now, this statement declares that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. And that statement is doctrinally the most consequential statement that we could find in Scripture. 
The proclamation is that redemption and forgiveness of sin comes by the blood of Christ alone. In the Old Testament, we know that the practice of of the children of Israel was to make a sacrifice before the living God. That it was a testament of their faith in him. Now these sacrifices that they made, these were temporal in their atonement. They couldn't actually cover the severity of their sin. These sacrifices made no complete forgiveness of sin. God required something more. And in Hebrews, Paul makes this this point very clear. Hebrews 10.4 For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and, and of goats should take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a, a body hast thou prepared. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no, hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifices and offerings, an offering and burnt offerings, and an offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we, uh, will we are uh, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The blood of Jesus was required. It was required. It was necessary. And there was no way around it. The forgiveness of all of humanity's sin was gruesome and disgusting business. It was a terrible thing that the Son of God had to endure this kind of pain and suffering. That he, was, that he was willing to lay down his own life and to suffer the shame that we deserved. The Bible is explicit in its account. Our creator came and he took the form of a man. Philippians 2.6 says, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He faced temptation and difficulty the way every person on earth has ever faced it. And yet, despite the fact that he faced trial and temptation just like you do, he lived perfect and without sin, that he might be the sinless sacrifice that he was intended to be. And when it was his time, he willingly took the beatings and the scourgings and the mockery and the shame. John 19.1 says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Can you imagine his own creation? Beating him, beating him with their with their own hands. Then they took him to Golgotha and they crucified him. They pierced his hands and his feet and they let him suffer the agonizing pain of suffocation on the cross. The prophecy of Christ's death is recorded in Isaiah as follows: Isaiah fifty three five. But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. 
And this is the point here. That in Christ, we have our redemption. We are redeemed from the curse of sin and the burden of the shame and the consequences of sin. Because of Christ, we can be forgiven and set apart. We can be made whole. Our redemption is found in his suffering, in his body, and in his blood. And, and the reason, you know, so many of you right now, I'm going through all this and I'm preaching this, and a lot of you have heard this. You've heard this. You've heard it time and time again. You've heard this message. Some of you, many of you, in fact, have received this reality. You've received this as true in your own life. You believe upon these truths. But the problem, the problem with us is that we do not daily value the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf. We don't truly value the redemption that's been extended to us. And so we, we, hear, about, we hear words like redeem and we hear words like forgive and they fall on deaf ears. And that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible thing. Even lost people have heard this story so many times that it doesn't even hold any value for them. But listen to me. The blood of Jesus Christ, as gruesome as it is, and, and, it's, and, it's, and people are trying to erase it from our theology. Do you understand that? That in Christianity today, that in the church today, that there are pastors and, and there are professors in seminaries that are actively trying to forget the fact that Jesus Christ died the most bloody death that anyone could ever go through and that he did it for you. They're trying to erase those truths. Why? Because it's not really convenient. The same way that hell isn't very convenient. The same way that, that damnation is not a very convenient theological idea. And yet the only reason the only reason that we could ever escape the torment of hell is that we find our forgiveness in the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 2.24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Our redemption is in his suffering, and our cleansing is in his blood. Colossians 2.13 says, and you, being dead in your sins, dead, dead in your soul, dead in your spirit, dead in your body. Cursed by the weight of your own sin. Dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so here's our very first key point. Your identity, Christian, is shaped by Christ's redemptive and forgiving work. 
You want to know who you are? You want to know who you really are? Not what the world says that you are, not that your, what your family says, not your self-perceptions, not what, not what nature has told you that you are, that your biology tells you that you are. Listen to me. Your identity is shaped by Christ's redemptive and forgiving work. And so many of us have identities that are shaped by our own shame. So many of us are obsessed with past sin. So many of us lay in bed at night and we think about all of the things that we've done and all of our failures and and the things that we've messed up and the opportunities that have been lost and the friendships that have been lost along the way and all of the, the broken relationships, things don't seem to be right. And we obsess about our past and we're full of shame. And just as terrible, so many of us are confused within our, within our present realities. We look at our work or we look at our, 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 our you know, our education or we look at our financial situation and it's confusing it's confusing. We don't know where we're going. We have, we have no idea what we're supposed to do in the present moment. Which direction do I take? There are so many paths. There are so many different ways to go. I, I don't know who I'm supposed to be in this very moment. And just as troubling is that thinking about our future only produces fear. We think about what the next two years or five years or 10 years might be like. And we ask ourselves all the questions. Will I be married? Will I have kids? I have no prospects. What job will I have? Where will I live? I mean, these are all the thoughts that, that every person, especially in their 20s, are thinking about. And, and we, these things roll around in our mind. And they produce so much anxiety. But listen... When we ask ourselves, who am I? The very first thing that should come to mind is that I am an exonerated child of God. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I like, I like the, you know, the crime documentaries as much as any person does. If you don't enjoy, if you don't enjoy a good Dateline episode, I don't even know if you... you you're certainly not an American. <laughs> okay? A little 2020, a little 48 hours, forensic files. I mean, I can go on and on, right? You know, what's, what's, what's really um, powerful, you know, when you're watching those shows is when, when justice has its way. You know, when, when, when they catch the bad guy, they, they, use, they use the DNA evidence, you know, and they string you along. It's like, you know, in the first three minutes where the whole entire two hours is going. Like, so you just know we've gotten really good at it. Like, oh, yeah, so-and-so did it, right? But you watch anyway, okay? And, and, and because you want to see justice take place, you want to see the bad guy get thrown in prison for the rest of his life. But you're the bad guy. In this story, you're the bad guy. Your sins, 
Your sins are all the evidence that God needs to let you suffer for eternity. And yet, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to exonerate you from your crimes. So what God is telling us is that that in Christ, we are made free. And it's time that we believe that. We have to actually believe it. We have to stake our identity on it. You know, so many of us are ashamed to share the gospel. I wonder what that says about our identity. We're afraid to tell the story about Christ's blood and about his sacrifice and his redemptive work. We're scared to talk about it. I wonder what that says about who we are. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is everything to us. Hebrews 10, 17. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. I'll remember them no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. He's made the final offering. Once and for all, the whole thing is settled. And at the point that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, man, listen to me, listen to me. It's not just that your eternal destination is settled. It's that who you are is settled. It's settled. But it goes on. God has more to say about who we are. In whom we have wisdom. Verse 8. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And we see here that Christ has abounded toward us. Or or, or this word abounded means furnished us with wisdom and prudence. Now, this is, no, this is no small thing. The Bible talks a lot about wisdom. And again, this is one of those words that we could just gloss over and not think too much about. But listen to me. He's abounded us. He's furnished us with wisdom. And this is not a small thing. If we're in him, then his heart is extended to his children. And his wisdom and his understanding are delivered to us through the mechanism of his word. Romans eleven thirty three 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. I mean, aren't they? Is it like when you think about God and you think about the universe, you watch one of these documentaries about, like I'm on the documentary thing right now, so bear with me. You're on PBS, you see, you see how small the earth is in relation to other planetary bodies in the solar system. And then you think about the galaxy and then you think about the universe and then, and then you start tripping, right? <laughs> right? And you just get lost in the abyss of your own thoughts and you start freaking out. And then you have to like go eat like ice cream to like take your mind off of it. God is big. He is vast. He is unsearchable. And his judgments are way past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath seen his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? 
Paul's using language here from Isaiah 40 and Job 41 to strike us with wonder over the eternal depth of God's mind. Now, who could possibly know the mind of God? Certainly, I couldn't. My mind, I mean, like my mind is foggy just today, just knowing how much I've got ahead of me this week. Like I just, I feel, I can feel overwhelmed so easy. I so often can't even make sense of what I'm supposed to do this afternoon. And that kind of mind, that kind of limited thinking makes it fairly impossible to wrap my mind around who God is. Seems way beyond us. It seems unattainable. But in him we find that he is knowable. That's the wildest thing is that he is actually knowable and his wisdom is available to us. Check out what 1 Corinthians 2.16 says. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Well, we just determined nobody. That he may instruct him. But we, we, we have been privileged. We have the mind of Christ. And so our next key point is this. Your identity is shaped by your access to the wisdom of Christ. So this here, this is the mind of Christ. Like, God God was so gracious towards us in that he decided to capture all of the thoughts that he believed that we need and put them in a book and preserve it over time. I mean, this is one of the greatest acts of grace that he could possibly extend to us is that he captured his thoughts, he captured his mind in a book. And we have the ability, when we, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, when we divide it rightly, to know his very mind, his very thoughts, and we can own them. Now, now the problem is that so many of us read the book and we don't like what we're reading, or maybe we're bored by it, bored by the mind of God, Bored by it, and so we reject it. Now, we don't do it outrightly. Many of us do this very passively. We read it, and we just, we don't, we don't take, take it for what it is. We don't find any wonder in it. We don't get excited about it, because we're, we're really, really excited about video games and Chipotle for lunch and, you know, you know, texting with our girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever it is, right? Those are the things we're really excited about. But God's put his freaking mind in a book and has, has given it to you as a gift And so many of us just passively reject it, like no big deal. That way of thinking really affects us. We wonder why we're anxious. We wonder why we're fearful. We wonder why we don't know who we are. And it's because we don't take his words seriously. He's given us wisdom. He's given us understanding. You know, the the old saying goes, it's, it's not about what you know, but who you know, right? Like for those of you who are networking and you got a, you know, you got a useless degree, <laughs> you're really betting on that, that, that old adage. You know, spend $100,000 on a degree you don't even know what to do with. And so, you know, you got to network. It's about who you know, Right? Man, if that's true, if that's true in our, in just our, our lives, our day-to-day lives, if it's true of our careers, man, it's so much more true for our relationship with Christ. 
Look, you don't need to actually know anything. You don't have to be super qualified. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to have the best resume. You don't have to look a particular way. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to stack up in the world's eyes. You don't have to. Because you know the living God. And your mind, you you have access to his mind. And you can put his mind in your mind. And you can have wisdom. And if you know Christ, he's made himself knowable to you and, his, and the mysteries of his will. And it's here that we, we, we learn specifically that he's revealed to us the mystery of his return. And so the, the third thing we need to know is that he is, he's the one who's given us a home. He's given us a home. A dwelling place, an eternal dwelling place. Ephesians 1.9 says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. So he's given us wisdom. And then he's made known unto us the mystery of his will. It's good to know God's will for our lives. According to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in him, in, in one, all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So here's the deal. One day, see, God's got this plan. He's revealing it to us. He's giving us the mysteries of his will. It's his will that one day he would unify his universal church, that he would take this little church and that little church, churches all over the world, churches throughout history, saints of old and saints of today. He would take all of us and gather us together at his coming, that we would be one with him forever, that we would truly be the bride of Christ and he would be the groom. And that he would love us and adore us for all eternity. That's what he's longing for. I mean, the, enti- the whole of the, the, the minor prophets is riddled with this. With this idea that he desires his people so desperately that he's jealous for us, that he cannot wait to be in the presence of, our, of, of us bodily. He can't wait. He's looking forward to it. And so based upon that, based upon that being his will for us, and it's the mystery that's revealed to us and the knowledge of us that that one day all things will be gathered together in Christ, we know this. Key point, your identity is shaped by the knowledge that that we will, will one day be with Christ. You know, we talked about this at length in 1 Corinthians 14 and 15, all that. The knowledge that, that we will be partakers in his resurrection. And so I don't want to revisit that in depth. But look, one day Christ is returning for us. And I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I believe that it could happen at any moment. And we will be redeemed. We will be made whole. The one day he'll gather us together with him. All the saints through all of history that will be with him in the millennial reign and into eternity future. I believe that. And to me, this is the greatest comfort and consolation to the whole conversation surrounding identity. To me, this is is probably one of, if not the most informative truth that impacts me. You know, I've often thought to myself, and I I know that you think these things too, right? None of us are beyond this. Like, what am I even doing with my life? What am I even doing? There have been moments in my life, you know, where I've had serious 
existential reflections where it's like, I don't, I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know where I've come from. How did I get here? And in these moments, the reset for me is always understanding that one day I'll be with Christ. And sooner than later, like, like I'm halfway done. Like I, I hit the halfway mark. There's, there's still a lot left in the race, I, I believe. But I'm at the halfway mark. Some of you guys aren't even thinking about the race. But one day you'll be with him. And so this is, right here, this is the reset for me. Christ is coming. Christ is coming and he'll make all things right. Whatever doesn't feel right, whatever feels wrong, whatever feels confusing or difficult, he's gonna make those things right. When I'm with Jesus, this current circumstance that I face will one day be a distant memory. When I am in heaven, all of the drama, the drama with my family, the drama with my friends, the drama with my college, the drama with my job, all of these things, they'll be settled and they'll be settled for eternity. No big deal. This is but a moment. This is but a vapor. And it puts everything back in its proper place. It's when we know the promise of heaven that we can begin to discover that he's not just our future dwelling place, but he's our current dwelling place as well. Psalm 91 says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. This is the offer that he's always extended to us. That we can find our home in him. So the next key point is your identity is shaped by the knowledge that you're with Christ even now. Jeremiah 23, 23 says, am I a God at hand? Saith the Lord, in other words, like, am, 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 am I nearby? And not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do, do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I mean, the declaration of Scripture is that I'm near to you. I'm near to you. And you can be at home even right now. You can find peace and solace in the knowledge that that one day you'll be with me bodily, but, but, but even right now, we are together. We, are, we, we can commune together. We can speak together. We can, we can bless one another. We can, we can find glory together. That's the invitation that Christ extends to us even now. So you want to know who you are? Be shaped by the fact that God sees everything that you're doing all the time. Be shaped by the fact that when, when you get in your car, you wake up in the morning, or when you're at home by yourself, God's right there. He's watching what you're doing. Jesus is your homeboy. Remember that? Remember those stupid shirts? What was that about? You guys remember that? Maybe you're too young. It was like a thing in the early 2000s. Yeah? You seen those? Yeah, yeah. But Jesus is your, is your friend, Right? And yet we, again, we treat him like, like, we, like we have an appointment with him. 
that we make when we come to church. We wake up in the morning and we open our Bibles and we do our devotional time. And we act like we have, we, we make appointments with God. And those appointments are fine. You know, good intentional time with God. But God is with you everywhere you go. So why is it, why is it that we fear? Why is it that so often we feel lost? Because if Christ is with you all the time, then you're always home. And you don't feel lost at home, do you? You feel lost when you're, when you're staggering around in the darkness, when you, don't have a, when you don't have a purpose. But if Christ is always with you, then you're always home. You're always with your dwelling place. I think that that helps. I think that helps with, with understanding who we are next in whom we have inheritance. In whom we have inheritance. Now, this is going to be a huge part of our conversation in the coming weeks. So, so we won't spend a whole lot of time here. But let's start with verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the, the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, we talked about this last week. We talked about the idea of predestination, and we talked about what that meant, okay? We talked about the context of the passage is that God has predestinated or determined things for us in heavenly places. And so from the foundations of the world, from the very beginning, God has determined certain things to be true for his children, all right? And and so, so we understand that God has set aside special blessings that belong to those he knew would put their faith and trust in him. And those blessings are in a, in a future eternity. And that's why it's an inheritance, because you claim an inheritance, don't you? An inheritance is claimed in a future time. So, so in this passage, we've, we've already learned that our inheritance is in, in, in heaven. And that blessing is true holiness true blamelessness, and true acceptance, right? We looked at that already. We know that God has an inheritance that's also been set aside for the nation of Israel. And so if you know your Bible, you're familiar with that. There are promises and and, and specific inheritance that belongs to the nation of Israel. Some of these promises, they overlap and and some don't. Some of them, they're, they're, they're truths and promises that we can claim as New Testament believers. Some of them we can't. But in the coming weeks, we're gonna explore the doctrine of inheritance for the Christian saint more thoroughly. But for now, I want to simply rattle off some scriptures that that declare that you're an heir of Christ. Can we do that? Are you guys with me? Follow along, okay? Follow follow the bouncing ball. Here we go. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may may be also glorified together. Galatians 3, 29. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 4, 7. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Colossians 1, 12. Giving thanks unto the, unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Titus 3, 7. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hebrews 1, 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? James 2, 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, 
And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So here's the point. Your identity is shaped by all that is promised to you. Your identity is shaped by all that is promised to you. Again, we're going to delve into this much more deeply, but we should at least hit on this for now. All the things that have been promised to you, you claim those things and they shape who you are. They affect the way you see yourself. They affect the decisions that you make. They have a huge impact. And so I'm looking forward to to exploring this more in depth, but I can give you a taste of it right here in verse 13. Verse 13 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. I just want to point out how important promises are. You know? When, uh, when you're a kid and your parents make a promise to you, do you remember how you held them to that? You remember doing that? And you would make everything a promise. Anything they said, you would just call it a promise. But you promised, and you're like, and your parents are like, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. You're twisting my words. You made, make everything into a promise. And the reason that you do that is because you want to stake your reality on it. Right? I mean, okay, so I got, I got a 12-year-old and a, a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old. And, and so if you say something like, you know, maybe we'll go get ice cream tonight. Or maybe we'll go, maybe we'll have pizza. We'll order pizza to the house. Okay? And it's this like offhanded comment. If you don't do that thing, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Like, they take it so serious. Everything becomes a promise. And then they own it in their little hearts, don't they? So much to the point that they're willing to cry about it and look real stupid on the living room floor. (laughs) That's how deeply, that's how deeply they're affected by everything that you say. Now listen, do you do that with Christ? When he makes a promise to you, when he tells you something, do you own it at that heart level? Do you buy it? Do you buy into it? Do you believe it so much so that it impacts the way that you see who you are and the way that you behave? Now, don't be like my bratty little kids where you like try to twist the things that God says. But listen to me. I'm asking, do you take his promises seriously? And here we have a promise, okay? Now, this is what we're talking about. How is our identity shaped by what Christ says about us? And here we have a promise that for those who put their faith in Christ, those who believe in the word of truth, who've trusted in the gospel and confessed Christ as Savior, the Bible promises that you are sealed until the day that Christ comes to claim you as his very own. There are many people in Christianity who propagate a spirit of fear by teaching that a Christian can lose their salvation. But here's my my logical question for someone who teaches that nonsense. How could you possibly unearn something that you never earned to begin with? How could, you, how could you unearn something that you never earned? 
It was never about your works to begin with. The things that you do, earning God's favor, you know, tipping the, ba- the heavenly balances, these fictitious balances in the heavenly realm. Oh, you know, God's like, oh, it's real precarious. You can't see it. You don't know how good you've been. You don't know. You- Listen, and, and people, Christians, people who call themselves believers live in a reality where they're completely unsure. But my Bible teaches that I never earned anything in my salvation, that everything was done for me, that all I simply had to do was was believe on it in faith. There's no work involved in that. Salvation was a gift. It was unmerited, unearned. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are you saved through faith. I see the people who are in discipleship right now. They're like saying it. They're like, I can see your lips moving. (laughs) You know this verse. You got this memorized. You got it. Say it with me. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It was a gift. So listen, no evil thought or sin or failure will ever tip those fictitious scales. He loves you unconditionally. Here's another question. John 3.3 says that you must be born again to be in the kingdom of Christ. Right? Now, if you're born again, how can you be unborn? Is there anything that I can do to reverse or undo my birth? Is there anything I can do to erase my conception? There's not, I can't go back in time and prevent my parents. (laughs) Can't do it. I can't do it. And so it's equally as absurd to think that there's something you can do in your own power to undo your spiritual birth. See, look, you can disavow and you can divorce yourself from Christ with your words and your actions, but once you've become his child, you are sealed until the day of redemption. Until he comes to claim what he bought with his blood. Is his, is, here's another question for you. Is his blood that insignificant that you can undo its mighty work in your life? It made you spotless. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Here's the point. Your identity is shaped by the security of your salvation, isn't it? <laughs> Knowing that God's not going to quit you is a big deal. It's a big deal. And I've watched as many young Christians who've struggled with uh, this, this idea of losing their salvation or asking themselves, maybe I was never saved to begin with. Whether it's a Calvinistic perspective that, that assumes, well, maybe I'm not actually of the elect to begin with. Or a charismatic perspective that says, perhaps I lost my salvation by doing something along the way. In both of these cases, I've watched dear friends of mine go up and down on spiritual roller coasters that, coasters that took them nowhere. It's a terrible thing to watch, 
It's a terrible thing to see people that you love have no security. It's destabilizing, and it, and it, and it causes the foundation that Christ is to falter. It makes God's love uncertain. It makes the promises of God's word unsettled. And so their hearts become restless and, and prone to rebellion. You know, if my love for my kids was conditional, and if they lived in a constant state of fear and anxiety that, that a misstep or a misunderstanding could undermine my love for them, it would either produce a relentless obsession to earn my approval, or it would produce hatred and rebellion. Those are the only two outcomes. Paradoxically, the knowledge of Christ's unconditional love to know that he willingly shed his blood for me, that his love was proven, that it's evidenced in his scriptures, that it's, that it's evident in the testimony of my life. The, the knowledge that he loves me and he loves me every day, even when I mess up, produces in me a desire to love, serve, and pursue him with everything that I have. His love makes me confident. So many of us lack confidence. So many of us don't know who we are. And look, his word is speaking truth over our lives. If these kinds of truths don't inform the way that you see yourself, then you're blind. And you will continue to wander aimlessly without any hope. So it's time for us to stake who we are on these facts and on these promises. And I know for a fact there are people in here right now, based on what we've talked about, you have decisions to make. You have decisions to make about your yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You, ha you have decisions to make that address the shame of your past and the sin that you've been grappling with late at night. You've got decisions to make in faith about, about things that are going on right now. You're, you've got a crossroads right in front of you. You've got all kinds of decisions that you could make that would take you off the straight and the narrow. And so you need to make decisions about those things right now because the word of God has just informed who you are and who you're not. And some of you, you need to make decisions about, about the plans for your life. You need to lay down some of the plans that you've been holding on to, the things that you've been scrawling down on paper, you know, the things that you've been throwing your money at, the ideas that you have, the, you, you talk about passions. Man, I'm so sick of hearing about people's passions. Can't everybody, everybody just wants to pursue their passions. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. It's so weird. And, and everyone's so convinced. I mean, you just scroll on Instagram all day long, and everyone is convinced that they're, go, they're gonna make it. 
And maybe you've, got, maybe you've got big plans for your life. You've got big plans for your career. You're going to be this or you're going to be that. Listen to me. Some of y'all need to die to that stuff. You need, you need to die to who you think you are and choose to live in Christ. I want to invite the worship team up. 1 Timothy 1.12 says, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Do you have that kind of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you know you need to make a decision, maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never been forgiven of your sins, and you know that. You know, you know that you, you've got sin in your life. I think all of us understand that. I think all of us know that we, that we fall short of whatever holiness is. We fall short of it. That We make mistakes all the time. And if you don't have any surety in Christ, if you don't know that you've been forgiven, I, I want to beg you, listen to me. There is no decision that you need to make concerning your identity that's any greater than saying yes to Jesus Christ today. And so if you know that you need to put your faith in him, you want to know what it means to be saved, come forward, grab a hold of one of the counselors. They'll be right up here. Others of you, you have other decisions that you need to make concerning your identity. Let's make them now. Let's not, listen, let's not wait. Let's not wait. Kaya, do you know that God wants to use you? He wants to use you. Don't withhold the blessings that God has extended to you in his word. Don't withhold. Don't don't hold back. There's no time like today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. We trust you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word informs who we are. Lord, we're, we're thankful that the burdens of this life become light. Um, I mean, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And the reason that is because you carry all the weight. <laughs> you, you did all the stuff. You did all the work that, that we could never have done. You did it. See, it's the world that puts a burden on us. It's the world's yoke that's heavy. And so, God, I pray that you would awaken us to what we have in you. And that we would, we, would, we would take that redemptive work and we would take that wisdom and we would take that knowledge of a future dwelling place and, and we, would, we would believe that you've sealed us with your spirit and we would, we would find confidence and joy in knowing you and trusting you. Help us. I pray in Christ's name, amen. today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.